the most important thing is to gain an awareness that different cultures have different norms. I mean, when you actually begin feeling it and you find yourself in that situation where everything just seems a little bit out of whack from what you're used to, it's very disorienting. So I think just basically going in with the awareness that things are going to be very, very different and you have to reserve your judgment until you have a full understanding. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydie Buechelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation that I had with Richard Berger. Richard was born and raised in the United States, but has spent almost 35 years in Japan, first as a university student in the mid-1980s, and then for work since 1990. He spent 20 years working at Canon's global headquarters in Tokyo, where he was in charge of global PR and later moved to Link Global Solutions, an intercultural communication company where he was the director of communications. Richard now works on a freelance basis, doing translation, transcreation, writing, and video work, including animated educational movies. Be sure to keep listening to learn more about his experiences and insights into working in Japan and learning Japanese. My name is Richard Berger, and I'm from the United States. I was born in upstate New York, but I grew up in the South, Atlanta, Georgia. When I was in high school, we moved to Southern California, and when I was a university student, I came to Japan on a one-year overseas study program. Uh, and I studied at Waseda University in Tokyo. I extended that for an additional year. Then I went back to Los Angeles, where I was living before I came to Tokyo. Uh, finished up school. I got a job with Nippon Television's Los Angeles Bureau. And I worked there for about a year and a half. And with their assistance, I got a journalist visa and came back to Japan in 1990. And I have lived here ever since. When I first came back, I was working in the television industry. And then I later transitioned into public relations and I worked for 20 years at Canon at their Tokyo headquarters. After that, I moved to a intercultural communication training company. I was a director of communications there for a while and now I'm working freelance doing translation work, transcreation, writing, and some video creation. Great. So would you mind sharing a little bit about what drew you to Japan in the first place? I was always curious about Japan. One of the things I was very interested in was the the language and the writing system. Uh, I suppose you could say the same thing for Chinese because, you know, they, they both use Chinese characters. But I was just sort of fascinated by it. And of course, I studied Spanish and actually French when I was in uh, lower grades. But uh, there was something very, I'm hesitant to use the word exotic, but there was something enticing about an Asian language. And when I was in university, I started out as a music major and I was in the wind ensemble of what other people might call a brass band. And the wind ensemble at the university I attended was invited to Tokyo to attend a music educators conference that was being held in Tokyo, and we were invited to perform there. So 
I was in university. I hadn't taken foreign language credits yet. Um, I was training in karate at the time, so I was kind of interested in that aspect of the culture. And I knew I would be coming to Japan, uh, Tokyo, for two weeks on this concert tour, our wind ensemble. And I thought, well, you know, it's it's a great opportunity. Uh, Since I'll be going anywhere, I might as well, you know, get some language credits and learn some of the language so I can speak it when I eventually come. So I took a year of Japanese. I did very well. I got very good grades. And despite, uh, this is something that any student of Japanese will probably be able to share in the pain, but despite having studied for a year and theoretically having done well in the class, I came and could barely communicate at all. I was able to say what I wanted to say, but I couldn't really understand what you know the people I was speaking to were saying. So uh, a combination of frustration and pride I, I, I vowed to myself that I would come back and wrestle Japanese into submission if it killed me, right? So I had an opportunity to come about a year later as a student, and I, I took advantage of that opportunity and came and lived with a Japanese family at the time, a homestay family. And the rest is history, I suppose. Yeah. So what motivated you to stay in Japan for the long term instead of going back to the States? Well, interestingly, I don't know, I had sort of a suspicion even before I came that I I don't know if I would be, I didn't know in advance that I'd spending, you know, the rest of my life here, but I don't know, I I just had an inkling that Japan would agree with me. I don't know why. And while some of the other students on the study program that I attended, some of them struggled, some of them, you know, really enjoyed being in Japan. I was among the latter group. It just, you know, it it worked for me. It it felt comfortable. That doesn't mean a lot of things weren't challenging because they were, but it it didn't seem like that much of a stretch for me to stay. And the longer I stayed, the more I wanted to, the, the better I became at speaking Japanese, the more I wanted to continue improving. Uh, after my two years of study, I went back. I was a student at California State University in Northridge, and I went back and there were there were several Japanese exchange students who were there. And I was proudly displaying my Waseda University sweatshirt around campus, and they noticed, and they called out to me, and I became friends with them. And whenever they were in a group, they were speaking Japanese anywhere. So I just kind of joined the group. And some of the Japanese friends I made in Tokyo, when they came to visit me, they said, you're the only student who, after leaving Japan to return to the U.S., actually improved your Japanese. So I was... I was managed to take advantage. Well, that's not a, a pleasant way to say it, but I, I in a sense, I, I benefited from having a lot of Japanese friends who were studying at Cal State Northridge. And uh, I was able to continue practicing and improving my Japanese with them. If they wanted to learn English, I was more than happy to help them. And I did help them. So, you know, even after coming back, there was that connection that I, I intentionally maintained. Yeah, that's great. And being able to foster relationships with people is definitely a better way to really develop your language skills. Oh, definitely. So then you mentioned that you came back to Japan on a journalist visa, which is something that I'm not really familiar with. Does it function any differently than the other visas that people commonly come over on? Well, the bureau chief, who was just a wonderful, wonderful man uh, who I had tremendous respect for in Los Angeles, he knew that I was eager to return to Japan. And and he was kind of working behind the scenes 
to help me to meet that goal. And uh, he arranged for me to be given a journalist visa. And journalist visas at the time, granted, this was 1990. And I, I don't you know, know if, if the same applies today, but it was a five-year visa that could be extended, issued one year at a time. So it was valid for five years, but after each year, it had to be renewed. And actually, through his assistance, I was introduced to a talent agency. So when I came, I, I, was, I, I arrived on a journalist visa, which was good for one year at the time. And I joined a Japanese talent agency because when I was in Los Angeles, I was I was kind of a all around. I was you know a driver. Uh, I was a coordinator. I would conduct interviews with people that they were talking to. I was you know helping out in the editing room with translation of of you know interview content and things like that. So I was kind of getting familiar with what working in the television industry was like. And I was occasionally doing, you know, reports from Los Angeles for, you know, comedy shows and things like that on Nippon television. So I had also got some experience on camera. And it was kind of the heyday of, of foreign talent in Japan. And I was introduced to the talent agency and joined the talent agency that at the time was representing some well-known names uh, that are, are maybe not be known now, but uh, like uh, Kent Gilbert and uh, Chuck Wilson and Daniel Call. So these were kind of the people who were appearing most at the time. And I kind of joined that stable and, you know, immediately found myself on television and occasionally appearing in a movie and on radio and things like that. So it was kind of the heyday of foreign talent in Japan. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Was it any different? Than Bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> but was it any different than what you were expecting having worked on the American side for a little bit? Well, I mean, yes, because I was the talent. Uh, I, I, I should say that in air quotes, just so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware of, of how that sounds. But, you know, I, I tried not to get a big head. I fully appreciated that it had nothing to do with my good looks and charisma and uh, nothing like that. It was just sort of the luck of the draw and, and also belonging to an influential talent agency that had the strength to get their talent on different shows. But, you know, it, it was also a learning experience. You know, I don't know how many of the talents, foreign or otherwise, are, are viewed in Japan, but they're, they're very talented at what they do. They they are very much in the entertainment business. They provide a service. They help, you know, viewers kind of forget about their, their troubles, you know, their daily work and the things that worry them from day in and day out. So they're very good at entertaining people. And I kind of felt that pressure to, you know, be amusing, entertaining. And also there's kind of an expectation for non-Japanese talent to provide the Western perspective on things and, you know, offer some insight that differs from, you know, the Japanese take on things. So there was that pressure as well. I mean, one of the the probably most prevalent talent still around today is Dave Spector. And, you know, he's kind of known for his his puns and whatnot, but I've met him on a few occasions. He's immensely dedicated. To, I mean, he he pours over, I don't know how many newspapers every morning, Japanese and Western newspapers. He He's on top of all the news. He can talk about any topic, you know, so people might write him off as being just kind of a, you know, just a foreign talent, but 
he's immensely knowledgeable and and offers some really really balanced perspective on on a really wide range of topics i have tremendous respect for you know his knowledge and what he's able to do on television. Mm. Yeah, that's great to hear because it's something that you don't really get to know from the outside, especially about foreign talent. It's very much a unclear, opaque situation. Well, he stands heads and shoulders above everyone else in that respect because he's, he's kind of a a go-to a news source or a a source of information that, that offers, in many respects, very balanced perspective on, on what's going on in the world. So... Why did you decide to eventually leave the talent world in Japan? Well, getting married and having my first child and kind of feeling the obligation to to get in a more steady line of work were the primary factors. I, I was not exactly, you know, rocking the entertainment world with my presence. And it was a very, once again, unstable line of work, uh, particularly for me at the time. And I... I was getting a little tired of it. You know, it was fun while it lasted, but I needed to do something a little more down to earth or realistic. And when I was, this was before the internet, mind you, this was in 1995, 96, something like that. I was going through the Japan Times, the want ads, because there was no, you know, online services that I could check for job listings. And it turns out that that public relations seemed to be an occupation that I could make use of a lot of my existing skills, including translation work, presentation skills, and things like that. So I, I found a job originally at a PR agency that didn't work very well. I, I unfortunately had a, a manager that I didn't get along with, and I left there after about six months and found a job working at Canon. And it was, you know, a match made in heaven. It was my coworkers and my boss were just all wonderful, wonderful people. And I, I really felt at home there. And I stayed there for 20 years as a result. Yeah. So was it hard for you to try to change jobs as a foreigner in Japan? Or were you able to leverage a robust network? How did that work on a logistic level for you? Or was it very straightforward that you just said, hey, I'm bilingual, I'm in Japan, so? Well, language skills were immensely helpful. For anyone who can navigate the language, can communicate effectively and politely in the language, I think that alone will get you a big foot in the door. I mean, it's, it's really, I, I don't want to say essential, but it's, it's tremendously helpful if that is something that you can offer. And it immediately puts any potential coworker or boss at ease if you're talking about a Japanese coworker or boss. I had a few connections. I, I didn't really have a significant network to speak of, but one connection that I did have introduced me to this PR agency. And I interviewed with them and I was hired, but it, it just it, it didn't work out, unfortunately. And I ended up leaving after six months. And I was really, the only word I can use is depressed at the time. I was really down in the dumps. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just not cut out to work in corporate Japan. It's just not meant to be. And I was in a really bad place. But fortunately, I, I did find the position at Canon. And I had already six months of PR work under my belt. And that, I guess, was the deciding factor for them to, you know, say yes and give me the position. And, you know, within the first few months, my boss just, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about him, but 
he had a very wry sense of humor, and he was always laughing and making jokes. And because I had had such a bad experience prior to that, I almost thought he was setting me up. You know, he was trying to lull me into a false sense of security, and then he would kind of pounce or something. So I was very wary for the first few months. But then I realized, you know, this is just a nice guy. I mean, and I was really happy to to work for him. And all of my colleagues there in the PR department were just wonderful, wonderful people. So it was, you know, it, it completely turned me around and it pulled me out of my depression. You know, if, if I talk about it at length, I, I, I will seriously get a little teary-eyed because in many respects, Cannon and my boss saved me. I was in a really bad place. Yeah, I'm glad that you were able to find such a great place to end up and spend such a long part of your career. Really, probably the more formative part of your career, it sounds like. So what was it like working at a traditional Japanese company for so long. You mentioned that he had a great personality and that he was easy to work with, but what was the day-to-day experience like for you in a Japanese company? Well, this is something that I think would apply to anyone coming from a Western culture or, or familiar with Western business practices and then coming to Japan. There are a lot of things that just feel very uncomfortable. I'm not saying they're good or bad. It's just something that requires quite a bit of adjustment. And I mean, this is something that you, you probably often hear, but like it's the, it's the typical example that's often given is business meetings. You know, Western business meetings are an opportunity to show your 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 prowess, your 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 cleverness, your wit, your, you know, your smarts, right? You know, it's If you can give insightful comments, suggestions, ideas, just jump in and, uh, you know, show you're on your game and uh, are paying attention. Whereas most, not all, typical Japanese meetings, everyone is quiet and only one person speaks at a time. It's the intent is, you know, kind of sharing information. It's not, they're not, they don't want your feedback. They don't want your input. That's, that's not the objective of the meeting. So for someone who is not used to that, it will feel very uncomfortable. And for, let's say, someone from the U.S. who is unfamiliar with that business meeting style, they might be jumping in and saying, hey, this is my chance to show that I'm, I'm with it, that I'm on top of my game, that you know I've got some great ideas that I want them to consider. And you will be you know, kind of dooming yourself in the process. So something... Fortunately, I did. I I don't think I was given any preparation, but I kind of held my tongue and just did my best to observe everyone around me and pretty much match their behavior. And that is really, really crucial just across the board. A lot of things, you know, you may not understand. A lot of things you may misinterpret and you have to be very, very careful. Because if you don't know the reasons behind why people are doing the things they're doing, you could misinterpret them and, and come up with a, a wildly inappropriate interpretation. So these are there, there's just so many pitfalls that you have to be careful of, you know, when, when bridging the gap between, you know, Western and Japanese business culture. 
Yeah, I can see how it would definitely be a huge shock, especially for Americans to have meetings with Japanese people. So where are the opportunities for people to show what they have to offer since business meetings are clearly not the right time and place? Where do people have the chance to offer their input, ideas, show off their skills, things like that? How does that look in a Japanese context? Well, usually the situation comes on a more personal level, you know, one-on-one, you know, uh, it, it could be, you could be at your desk. When I was working at Canon, there were islands of desks about like six or eight desks. So they were four in a row and then four on the opposite side. So you're, you're kind of face to face with someone and then you have someone on either side of you or, you know, something like that. But when you are kind of conferring with someone, if you need to check with someone about something, you know, just your day-to-day interactions with your coworkers, maybe smaller scale meetings, three people or four people, where you can confirm that everyone's a little more relaxed. Maybe there are not any supervisors or any managers there. Or for whatever reason, even if there is a manager present, everyone seems to be speaking in a more relaxed manner. It might be a brainstorming session. So something like that, as long as you're not too aggressive or assertive in your approach, I mean, that that is an opportunity to kind of share your thoughts or ideas, for example. So, you know, they're there, but they just may not present themselves in the traditional ways that you're familiar with in, you know, a Western company. And what are some behaviors that Americans might tend to engage in more often that could be considered aggressive in a Japanese context? Are there any things that people might not be aware of (laughs) that they do that comes off as abrasive in Japan? I think probably one of the the classic examples would be in a meeting. There there are times, it might depend on the company and the the, the corporate culture, but there are companies where you kind of can be critical of other people who are speaking in a one-upsmanship and trying to do a slam dunk on somebody sort of thing. That sort of thing just won't fly at all in Japan. I'd like to think that any American in a Japanese company would refrain from doing that. But it can be very, very difficult for someone from the U.S. to hold their tongue. This was something that was often highlighted in the uh, intercultural communication trainings uh, for the company that I, I belong to. But just the role of silence in Japan... Japanese are much, much more comfortable with silence, whether in a meeting, whether in in a face-to-face discussion, whether on the phone, and annoyingly, whether on a telephone conference. So, you know, it's just not a big deal for them. That's part of the communication process. Sometimes what is being conveyed in silence is as important as what, you know, is being expressed in words. But for an American after about two or three seconds, it becomes extremely uncomfortable. So if you're in a business meeting and no one's talking, an American might say, um, actually, you know, just about what you said a moment ago. And it, for everyone else in there, in the meeting, they would be saying, why, why are you talking? What made you think it's your turn to talk? You know, if you hadn't been asked a question or you're not making a presentation, I mean, that wouldn't be necessarily aggressive or assertive, but it would just, I think, kind of let everyone know that you don't really understand what's going on. So these are delicate dances that you have to learn how to do. And uh, once again, 
for anyone who's not familiar, but who's coming to Japan, that's just something you really have to observe everyone around you very closely. And for the time being anyway, just kind of copy what they are doing or, or try to emulate their attitude, their behavior. And if anything, just view it as a learning experience because there's just so many ways you can step on a landmine and you may not even know it because no one will bring it to your attention. You may think, hey, that was a good meeting. I was able to share a lot of my ideas. And everyone else in the meeting's thinking, man, that guy was shooting his mouth off the whole time. And no one will tell you. So, I mean, you're surrounded by landmines if you're not careful. So silence is a topic that definitely comes up a lot, again, because Americans in particular are so allergic to it. But is there any limits on how silence functions in Japan? Because as you said, in America, it's two, three seconds and we're uncomfortable. But at what point does silence become awkward in a Japanese context? Do you have any idea of what that might be? Or does it just depend? The instructors who conducted these intercultural communication training seminars, they would have this little shtick that they did where they would say, how long do you think Japanese people are comfortable with silence. And then they would stop speaking and they would wait to see how long it was before a Japanese person actually offered, one of the participants actually spoke up and offered a response. And I think, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like 17 or 18 seconds. Whereas for Americans, three, four tops. And if you're in negotiation, if you're negotiating with maybe a Japanese company or, or Japanese, that's something you should really be aware of because it's not, they don't intend it as a tactic, but just being silent, you know, if you're offering a proposal and then the other party is silent and the American side is saying, of course, we can lower the price a little bit and then they're silent and maybe we can go to another 5%, you know, so they're, they're their own worst enemy because they don't realize that, you know, the Japanese side is just thinking or mulling it over or, or something else. It, it doesn't really mean that much to them. So it's something that that maybe if, if you're negotiating with Japanese companies or, or a Japanese counterpart, you might want to be aware of that because they may inadvertently use it as a weapon against you. I mean, they're, they're not trying to do that, but inadvertently that's the result. But this is a, a story from my days when I was working at Canon. But Canon was in the process of negotiating a buyout of a Dutch industrial printer manufacturer. And the, the PR team at Canon was discussing, this was maybe, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago. We were holding regular telephone conferences with our counterparts at this company, the PR team uh, at the Dutch company. And I was enlisted to be kind of the, the MC on the Japanese side. My colleagues were able to speak English, but sometimes I would interpret for them, or I was kind of making sure that everything was running smoothly. And every now and then the Dutch side would say, so what has been decided about whatever? And then I'm looking at my colleagues around the table, around the telephone conferencing machine, uh, microphone set up, and they would be looking at each other and pointing and, you know, gesturing at each other. And I'm realizing this is silence. They're kind of saying, okay, do you want to answer that? Should I answer that? Have we made a, have we reached a decision on that yet? And it was driving me crazy because I knew the, the Dutch team on the other side, all they heard was silence. And for all they knew, we were disconnected. So I would 
have to jump in and say, uh, hang on just a second. I think we're we're trying to decide who's going to answer that or if we've, you know, come to some, some sort of conclusion yet. So hang on just a second. We'll be right with you. And it never occurred to my Japanese colleagues to say that or to share with them, hang on a second. We'll be right back with you. And it drove me crazy. So I was kind of the intermediary and kind of navigating between the two parties to make sure that, you know, the Dutch side wasn't panicking. But, you know, that's just one example of how many Japanese business people, that's just something that it's, I guess you could view it as a blind spot. They're just not aware of how that aspect of the culture affects people from Western cultures. Yeah, you have no way of knowing if you've only worked in a Japanese context, how things work in a different context. That definitely makes a lot of sense. So then why did you eventually decide to leave Canon and move into a different industry? Well, I was at Canon for 20 years and I think it's a great company and I I had tremendous respect for the company and my coworkers, but unfortunately some unfavorable HR policies prevented me from transferring. I was not what they call a seishain, a a regular employee at the time, and they didn't allow someone in my position to say transfer to another division. Regular employees were, you know, kind of transferred and rotated to different departments or different divisions. And after 20 years of doing essentially the exact same job, I just I just got completely burned out and couldn't do it anymore. So it was kind of a sad parting, but you know, I, I just had reached my limit, so to speak, at Canon and decided to move on. And I train in karate here and I have some drinking buddies. And one of them, uh, the wife of one of my drinking buddies, uh, was working at the company I eventually uh, moved to. And they had a lot of non-Japanese employees there. And, you know, their their work was in the field of, once again, intercultural communication training. And his wife introduced me to the director there. And, and over the course of like, this is another lesson to share though, but over the course of about six to eight months, we just kind of got to know each other. I'd have dinner and drinks with them on occasion. And it was it was just a very gradual process of, getting to know one another, uh, building trust. And eventually they they offered me a job. And after making sure that my coworker at Canon was up to speed and able to take over my responsibilities, I left amicably from Canon and joined this other company. So the lesson I was alluding to there was nothing happens overnight in Japan. You know, anyone who's been here for a while knows that any business deals, business negotiations, everything is built on trust and just kind of building up a relationship. So, you know, any U.S. company that comes out and wants to give a a killer presentation uh, or a killer proposal, expecting an answer within the next week is going to be in for a a rude awakening because, you know, I, I can never imagine anything like that happening unless they got a, were vouched for by someone very trustworthy as an intermediary. Yeah, that is very interesting. And it makes it interesting to see how people are able to work within that context when things do take so long to gain traction in the country. And do you have any advice for people who may be wanting to make those changes or get started with a company in Japan, but the amount of time investment it takes makes them unsure of whether it's even worth getting started? Well, I mean, I'm not really in touch with with the latest hiring practices, but any Japanese company that's in need of filling a position 
And if they're in any sort of rush to do so, I'd like to think they're not going to drag out the, the interview process. So it might require one or, or two or, or three or possibly more interviews. But that's, I think, kind of a different situation as opposed to kind of business negotiations where you're going to do some sort of alliance or tie-up. Or if you're offering your services to a company, I don't think they're going to you know, say yes or no or they might say no very quickly, but I don't think they're going to to say yes after just one proposal or something like that. So when trying to get a position, if if it's a position that's being advertised for or in need of filling, I, I think that process would probably be not as long as some other kind of business interaction. So you mentioned that you worked at an intercultural communications company not as much on the training side, but you were definitely exposed to some of the skills that they taught and some of the ways that they articulated that to people to be more effective in Japan and for Japanese people to be more effective in other cultures. So are there any kind of basic level Japan-specific skills or mental models, ways of thinking that you would emphasize teaching somebody who wanted to work in Japan? Well, I think uh, a good primer might be, and this is something that that you and I discussed before the uh, the podcast, but there's an excellent book called The Culture Map by Erin Mayer. And she presents, I mean, it's not Japan specific, but, but she presents a lot of examples from various cultures. And I think probably the most important thing is to gain an awareness that different cultures have different norms. I mean, it sounds kind of like, oh, sure, of course, you know, anyone could understand that on the surface. But when you actually begin feeling it and you find yourself in that situation where everything just seems a little bit out of whack from what you're used to, it's very disorienting. So I think just basically going in with the awareness that things are going to be very, very different and you have to reserve your judgment until you have a full understanding. Now, with the intercultural communication training that was offered by this company, they had this lengthy spiel about the background, why Western or US business meetings are so different from Japanese business meetings. It is based on the education system. And, you know, uh, Japanese classrooms, Japanese education system is based on uh, Confucian uh, model education model. And basically, you know, if you understand the difference in the education systems between, uh, well, Japan and the United States, it, it makes perfect sense why Japanese participants behave the way they do in Japanese meetings. Those familiar with Japanese classrooms, they know that, you know, the, the teacher is kind of in charge and the student's role is to not interrupt the teacher and to just listen and take notes. And there's, there's a, a unique dynamic to Japanese classrooms as well. Whereas in the U.S., you know, a lot of teachers encourage their students to speak up, to voice their opinions, their thoughts, to debate ideas, and, and you know, they're, they're open to discussion. So it's very, very normal for everyone to kind of, there to be a free-for-all, so to speak, in, in, in uh, U.S. classrooms. Of course, not all every classroom, but, you know, when the classroom is open for discussion. Whereas in Japan, you know, it's usually the, the teacher that speaks. And I think there's also tremendous pressure on the students not to embarrass themselves by asking a question that maybe the teacher just, you know, something the teacher just said a moment ago, or to 
put the teacher in a spot by asking an embarrassing question. You know, so there's this dynamic within a Japanese classroom where, you know, the, the teacher is in charge and, you know, you don't rock the boat, so to speak. So keep in mind, they've uh, Japanese students have had 12 years education. And then if they go on to university of basically passively sitting and listening to someone else speak. So that is the norm. That is their default setting. That is their OS. So when they attend Japanese business meeting, that is going to be their standard operating procedure. You know, it, it would feel extremely uncomfortable for them to be voicing their opinions openly and interrupting people and, and jumping in the conversation. It's just not in them, which is why it's so difficult for Japanese business people when they get transferred overseas to get used to that in companies overseas when they get posted. So once you have that understanding, it's kind of an aha moment, right? It's like, ah, okay, you know, I okay, I see what's going on here. So if you didn't know that and we're going in to a Japanese business meeting and nobody's talking, you're thinking, what is it with these people? Are they even paying attention? Do they have their own thoughts and opinions about this? I mean, what is going on here? It would be so easy to kind of jump to those conclusions if you didn't know what was going on in the background. So that's just one example, but it, it, it kind of, in a nutshell, summarizes what can go on in different facets of life in a Japanese company, which is, you know, once again, it's the, this sounding like a broken record here, but, you know, you just have to withhold your judgment and observe carefully what's going on and try to figure it out or get a Japanese confidant who can kind of fill you in on what's going on. And they might not even be able to put it into words because for them, it's just, we're not doing anything out of the ordinary. This is just the way we do things. And, and you might get the very frustrating response of, this is Japan, this is the way we do things here, which you know doesn't really help. But for them, that's all they can say. They don't know the reasons behind their behavior. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to articulate your own culture, <laughs> especially if you haven't been exposed to very many other ones. And Japan being such a homogenous country, the odds of running into someone who doesn't have another cultural context to work with is a little bit higher, I think. Well, you ask a U.S. person, business person who you meet for the first time who sticks out his hand. It's like, why do you stick out your hand? To shake your hand, of course, right? I mean, that's what everyone does. Right? I mean, they don't No, Not everyone does that. So it's one of these things. It's it's kind of your default action. You don't think twice about it. If someone asks you why you do it, it's because, well, that's just the way you do things, right? It's the same thing. Exactly. So then how did you go about gaining such a high level in Japanese? It can take people decades to even reach more of an intermediate level. But apart from making those friends that you discussed earlier, how are you able to really develop your Japanese language skills? Okay, well, I've got a, a long and involved story that I often share when get asked this question. I'll try to give you the AM version. When I was in my first year of study at Waseda University and living with the Japanese family, I made a lot of Japanese friends and my Japanese homestay family, fortunately for me, didn't speak any English. So I had like about a, a three-month headache because I was, I was forced to speak almost exclusively in Japanese throughout most of the day which was immensely helpful, but also very tiring. And 
at some point after my first few months, I was I realized that I was thinking or relying, despite speaking in Japanese, I was relying very heavily on my native language of English. So I was kind of going back and forth, translating back and forth. And at some point I realized, I said, I'm translating certain words that I know very, very well in Japanese, but I'm still going through this inefficient process of translating them into English. So I said, okay, well, what would happen if I tried to think exclusively in Japanese? And so I, uh, the example I often give is I was walking to school one morning and basically I was saying to myself in Japanese, I'm now walking down the street. It's a little bit chilly today. Ah, good thing I have my coat. Oh, look at the time. If I don't pick up the pace, I'm going to be late for my 7.52 train. And then, you know, I said, oh, there's a dog barking somewhere. Or actually, I wanted to say there's a dog barking somewhere, but I didn't know the word for barking. So I said, mm, okay, I'll need to look up that word. So I was doing this kind of mental exercise for about, I don't know, three, four, five minutes. And I realized it was really quite exhausting. And that's when I realized, okay, I'm onto something here. This is hard. You know, I, I, I've gone out with friends drinking and eating and uh, spoke to them for hours on end in Japanese. But here I am trying to think exclusively in Japanese for all of two or three minutes, and I'm already mentally exhausted. So I made it a point to kind of repeat this exercise periodically during the day, extend the amount of time I, I did doing it. And in the process, I made a discovery, which, you know, it, it's not earth shattering, but to me, it was it was a big discovery. And that is when you speak with people, and you meet people for the first time, you're often having the same conversation or some variation of it over and over and over again. So you get very good at introducing yourself. You get very good at talking about a particular topic that you always talk about. And you, you may get lulled into the false sense of satisfaction or security that, hey, I'm, I'm making progress. I'm getting really good at speaking Japanese. But when you make yourself think in Japanese, you're doing it on various occasions. You're doing it in various circumstances. You find yourself perhaps trying to describe your surroundings and you encounter so many words, so many expressions that you want to say and don't know how to. So suddenly I realized the tremendous gaps in my vocabulary, in my ability to express myself. And, you know, this is before the era of, you know, mobile phones, smartphones. So I, I had a notepad and I would write down words or phrases or things that I wanted to say and didn't know how to. And I'd look them up or I'd, you know, grab a Japanese friend and say, how can you say this? How can you express this in Japanese? And uh, that's when my communication skills really took off. They, you know, there was a sharp rise in my learning curve there. And it was also immensely frustrating because I realized how many things I couldn't say. And uh, I would kind of up the ante, so to speak. I would try to get myself to think in Japanese at inconvenient times, maybe just before going to bed when I was exhausted or maybe very drunk or, you know, when I first thing in the morning when I wake up and I'm still kind of groggy. Can I think in Japanese under these circumstances? And uh, it got to the point where 
I didn't realize I was thinking in Japanese. I mean, this is not something that happens over the course of several weeks or you know a month. This is you know many many months of of concerted effort, and it also became much more convenient or easier to switch between Japanese and English if I had to. Whereas you know before maybe if I need to make an appointment on the telephone. I needed to <laughs> gird my loins and prepare myself. Okay, I'm going to speak Japanese, and I need to rehearse what I was going to say, and then you know maybe write down keywords or phrases that I I would might have to use on this telephone call, and then I make the call, and then I you know do it in Japanese. But when you're kind of sifting in and out of Japanese day in and day out, thinking it doesn't become that much effort to kind of. Cross the line and speak Japanese. So, in a very large nutshell, that is how I kind of happened across a training method that proved very effective in helping me improve my Japanese. I don't taking credit for having discovered this. I mean, it's just something that I occurred to me that I did and worked out very well in my case. Yeah, and I love how accessible it is to everyone. As in, you don't have to be in Japan. You don't have to have a tutor every single day. All of those are good things, but as long as you have a way to figure out how to say those things that you want to be able to express, you can do that from anywhere at any time. So it's something that you always have in your back pocket if you want to make it <laughs> a habit. Yeah, for those people who use, I don't have time to study as an excuse. This kind of shoots that excuse right out of the water because you don't. You know, you can be doing anything. You can be walking. You can be in the, you know, taking a shower. You can be brushing your teeth. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you have time to think, you have time to, well, quote unquote, study or, or you know, practice. Yeah, definitely. So thank you so much for sharing your time on the podcast today. I really enjoyed having the chance to dig a little bit deeper into your experiences. And I'm sure that my audience learned a lot as well. But is there anything that you wish I had asked you or that you wish we had had a little bit more time to talk about? Nothing in particular, but I just wanted to add one more thing about what I just finished discussing. I should add that at least my personal experience in training myself to think in Japanese and learning new vocabulary words and expressions along the way, I found usually when I, I learned a new word that I would forget it and then learn it again and then forget it and learn it again uh, about three or four times before it eventually took hold. So, you know, uh, especially when the the sheer volume of the new words and expressions you're you're learning, uh, you know, is is increasing, invariably you're going to forget words that you learn. So, you know, don't let that get you down. At least with, in my case, it, it took a, a process of maybe three or four attempts before it finally took hold. So at least with me, that was the normal learning process. So for anyone out there, don't expect to add these new words and expressions to your, your arsenal in one go. Right. It doesn't do any good expecting your brain to be perfect because that's unfortunately just not how we're wired. But I think that's why software like Anki, spaced repetition software, there's many different types, can be so helpful for people just because we naturally do forget things and we need to be reminded periodically. So I think that's a great thing to keep in mind. There are so many great tools available now that in my day, you know, we didn't have them. 
<laughs> I had to use paper dictionaries. So people are very, very lucky. Yep, exactly. Make the most of it. Make the most of what we have. All right. Well, thanks again for sharing your time. And I hope that you have a great one. Thank you, Lydia. It was a pleasure. And uh, it was an honor to be on the, the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Richard Berger, be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please check out the link to the show's coffee page to keep me well-caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!